can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings 6, uh, verse 24. 2 Kings 6, verse 24. In a moment, we'll read, starting there and read through the end of chapter 7. Um, If you would join me one more time in prayer as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your, your condescension to us your word, and your speaking to us. I thank you that you've not left us alone, but you've given us good news. That's why we gather here this Sunday morning. It's why we come to worship on Thursday and Friday as well. And uh, Lord, we we just pray for more of your grace to be upon us as Pastor Mark just prayed. Uh, We pray that you give us understanding. Uh, We do pray that you would pierce our hearts with your word. And... um, that we would be able to behold you and to behold your gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's read 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body, and he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. And Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gates, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city... The famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. 
So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. And they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gates. And the people trampled him in the gates so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Amen. Uh, well, when I was a, uh, a student at Michigan State, as many uh, college students learn to do, uh, well, as you do, you meet a lot of people meet a lot of fellow students, one of the questions that uh, immediately everyone learns to ask everyone, maybe the second or the third question you ask somebody besides, you know, what's your name, where do you live, is what's your major? So, you know, there's biology, I was a biology major, engineering, business, education, lots of different answers. Uh, a, a surprising number of students 
I, I met majored in something I had never heard of before and never understood and never asked, I guess, or cared. Uh, a certain major called supply chain management. Um, and that is something that from my time in college up until about two years ago, I'd never thought about, never cared about supply chain management. Uh, of course, with the, the pandemic and everything that has happened in the last couple of years, uh, supply chain shortages has sort of become one of the new buzzwords. Um, uh, of course, we, we're, we've all been very, very affected by supply chain shortages. I know I've had a number of, of uh, conversations here in the church, whether it's, it's lumber for builders, for companies, uh, vehicles, cars, and trucks, just as far as the eye can see, not being able to drive off the lot because they don't have uh, the right computer chip or something like that, a dozen eggs costing $5, the toilet paper section at Walmart being totally empty and bare, whatever it is, uh, we know something of the effects of a sudden break in the supply chain or just simply a lack of supply. At best, it's an inconvenience. At worst, it can be deadly. And such is the case with the city of Samaria in this text, the worst case scenario. Uh, now it is, uh, I should say, it's, this is not an issue of a, a, a pandemic or inflation or anything like that. It is a divinely ordained sort of desperation that God has placed upon his people in this time, and it leads to a, a divinely ordained deliverance in which the Lord shows grace to a very, very desperate people. Um, and I promise this, this, this is going to relate to Palm Sunday. Uh, we, we read that New Testament text of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Uh, it, it relates very well, actually. So as, as we're tracking through this story here, maybe you'll be able to follow along a little bit. But we'll come back to it at the end and how this relates to Jesus. But for now, we're going to look at this story of, uh, of the Lord showing grace to a desperate people in sort of four stages, four scenes, and four different sort of types of messages. So in the first scene, we have desperation on the wall. The second scene, we have hope in Elisha's home. The third scene, we find good news at the camp. And the fourth scene is a warning at the city gate. So we'll look at it in those, those sort of four scenes. The first one being desperation on the wall. Uh, we sort of open this, this encounter with uh, Samaria and Elisha on top of the city wall. Uh, if you remember from, from verse 23, just the verse before, there had been some sort of uh, peace, whatever it was, between Syria and Israel. Uh, that peace clearly has not lasted very long. Uh, there had been a peace from Syria sort of sending these ambushes, these raiding parties into, into Israel. Now Syria has gone into really a full-blown assault on the capital city. They've sieged it, and that has perhaps led to or, or maybe just concurrently with that siege, a famine has happened. It's an incredibly desperate situation. Uh, and our first sort of measure of what's going on and how bad it is comes in the, the, the uh, telling us the local food prices. In verse 25, and, and really you should probably put food in, in parentheses right there, or uh, uh, quotation marks, air quotes. 
Uh, a donkey's head was worth 80 shekels of silver. A fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was worth five shekels of silver. I, I have no frame of reference for that, and I'm sure you don't either. Um, and commentators kind of differ a little bit on what these prices are and how much they cost exactly, and, and even in, in terms of the, the dove's dung, what, what it actually might be. But to give a brief or kind of frame of reference, one shekel of silver might be about one month's wage for an average worker. So now, 80 shekels of silver, what, six and a half years worth of salary, is what it would cost to buy a donkey's head. Five months' salary for, for something as small as one cup of, of pigeon droppings. Uh, I mean, you don't need a lot of imagination to realize that, you know, those aren't delicacies. Um, those aren't even really food for the people. That's how bad things have gotten. But it's more than just scarce food. Um, because in verse 26, we see uh, one of the women in the city. She sees the king walking on top of the city wall. And she cries out to him for justice. And she pleads with the king with this, this sort of, I mean, really gut-wrenching deal that she has made with another woman. That things are so bad, we're going to eat our own children. Um, and, of course, she's been done. It actually kind of reminds us of Solomon uh, way back in, in 1 Kings with that, that famous wisdom uh, decision he had to make uh, between the two women and the one child. Uh, but they had made this sort of deal. Now, in and of itself, that is bad enough. I mean, it, it is horrific enough that they have to resort to cannibalism. But it's actually more than that because it's meant to kind of conjure up for us the covenant that God had made with his people way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So, for instance, from Deuteronomy chapter 8, as, as they're rehearsing the, the covenant that God gave his people and all the blessings that God was going to give them if they obeyed and all the curses if they disobeyed and did not keep the covenant, here's one of the sections thrown in there in Deuteronomy 28. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your, all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And so it is, it is horrific and, and gra so graphic. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys don't even want to spend another second thinking about it. None of us want to even think about this. It is so bad. You wouldn't even put this in a movie or a TV show. It's so graphic. But it shows that these are not just desperate times. This is divine punishment and divine curse. For generations upon generation upon generation of Israel forsaking the Lord and worshiping false gods and leaving him in the dust. And so you can, you can almost 
almost sympathize with the king, Jehoram, as he's walking around and he tears his clothes, except for the fact, uh, up until he speaks, really. So in verse 31, he says, May God do so to me more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. And then in verse 33, what the king says, uh, through his messenger, but this is the king's words, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It's really the exact opposite of the words of Job when he suffers. Shall we receive good from the Lord but not the evil? You can almost sympathize with him. He confesses God's sovereignty. He knows that this stuff has come from the Lord, but his response then is to give a stiff arm to God and say, I'm done with you. He does not wait for the Lord. He does not wait for his salvation. He does not turn and seek uh, the, the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. He turns away from God and blames him and wants to kill Elisha. And, and the king really responds, I mean, this is a harsh situation, but he responds in, in the same way that we often do, don't we? Can we not put ourselves in the king's shoes here? That when things are going very, very well for us, we praise God, we thank him, we're faithful, we love him, we, we do anything for him, but when things start to turn, and you know, the, the business suffers, the, the sickness comes back, I don't hear an answer to prayer, just how fickle we can be with God, right? How easy it is for us to turn from him. And what we do in, in, in the worst moments when things are going poorly, we blame him like the king does. We accuse him. We put him on trial. We say, God, you're not really that good after all, are you? You don't know what you're doing. You're not looking out for me. And so we give up. <clears throat> And our hearts can be very, very fickle. See, the king of Israel, he, he loved Elisha in the previous story when he was sort of hand-delivering the enemy soldiers to his doorstep, right? But now that the, the, the trouble, the evil has come, he wants to behead Elisha. Um, and he says, he confesses, he knows exactly what he ought to do. He ought to wait for the Lord. We're actually saying that. I didn't realize this, but... And the Lord is my salvation in times of waiting, in times of need, when I am lost, when I feel weak. What do we do? We wait for the Lord and for his grace to sustain us, to get us through that time. We're not meant to turn away from him. The king was meant to have waited for the Lord. But he didn't. The king refused to wait so he chases after Elisha. He sends, he sends his men after Elisha. They catch up to Elisha in his home. And when they do, Elisha gives them uh, really an, an unbelievable message. So here's the second scene, uh, a message of hope in Elisha's home. So in verse 1, after the messenger gets there, Elisha gives this, this, this prophecy. And he doesn't say how exactly, but what his prophecy sort of boils down to is that in 24 hours' time, food prices will drop significantly. Um, and this is sort of another place where the commentators differ a little bit, what exactly this, this means, these prices. But, but it, it seems like these are not quite, you know, rock-bottom prices. 
but they are significantly, significantly better. Um, so, so I'd be... Um, you imagine if, if we were going through a famine like this, what it might be for us is having to go out onto White Lake Road and scrape off roadkill to eat. Okay, that's pretty terrible. If, the, you know, if, if all of a sudden Walmart was flooded with, with food and you know, ground beef was $20 a pound, like that is not great, but it's a lot better than scraping roadkill off the, the, the road to eat. So, so things are not quite back to normal, and yet this is, this is literally an unbelievable message because, I mean, surely it's been, you know, how long does it take for a siege to get to this point? Weeks? Months? Um, it'd be a lot like, you know, everything we've gone through in the last couple of years with, with COVID and inflation. Every single market in the world, the global market, inflation, everything coming back down to, to 2019 levels tomorrow. Like, that'd be pretty hard to believe. Nearly impossible. And so the king's captain, he, he seems to understand that, and he, he sort of almost gives a little peek into what's going to happen, and he says, listen, if God were to open windows in heaven, could that be? Could that possibly be? He refuses to believe it. And so sort of along with this promise of, of economic recovery and relief comes this other mysterious promise that this captain will not eat of it. He's going to see it, but he won't eat. And that's something we come to at the end of the story. But for now, it's a very good lesson. As, As one commentator wrote, what is possible for God cannot be measured in terms of what is conceivable to mortals. What is possible for God cannot be measured in terms of what is conceivable to mortals. God's promises often seem immeasurable, unbelievable, too good to be true. And yet when he makes those promises, they're rock solid. And so even when, it's, it's, even when the circumstances around us scream the opposite, when we hear a promise from God, that is meant to be more true than even what our eyes can see. And that hope of the fulfillment of his promises is supposed to stick with us always. Again, that's, that's something we're going to come back to at the end here, but let's keep moving on. So, so we saw desperation on the wall. We see a message of hope in Elisha's home. Thirdly, we see good news at the camp. So in verse 3, we sort of cut to this completely brand new scene. We're introduced to four lepers who are apparently outside the city gates, and they're contemplating their situation, contemplating life, discussing what to do. And they reason that if they stay home, they will starve and die. So they decide to cast themselves on the mercy of the enemy because um, at least the Syrians have food, so we can go out there. With, with, with Syria, they only might die, rather than if they stay here in Samaria, they will definitely die. And so they go out to the Syrians to, to look for some mercy from them, and to their shock and awe, what they discover when they get to the edge of the camp is a ghost town. Uh, because we're told in, in verse 6, even, even sort of based on the wording here, both a couple of times the word twilight is maybe minutes before the lepers get there. 
God had caused the Syrian army to hear his angel army in their ears. Um, And being twilight, perhaps they are woken up out of their sleep. Um, Perhaps they've been sleeping. Imagine if you you wake up to just gunfire and cannons and everything in the middle of the night at your home, right? You'd be pretty disoriented. You'd be pretty shocked. You'd be pretty scared. And so they book it out of there. It sounded to them like army upon army was on their heels. And so they they really run away just kind of scattering stuff left and right like cartoon characters running away. They, they, They scoop up helmets and clothes and food and bread and all this, and they're running away, and it's falling out of their arms They just can't get out of there fast enough. Um, And I I, I just love the way several different people put it. Here's a couple of them what happened. It's not just a victory for God. It's a mockery of the Syrian army. Or like this, by the power of a whisper, he sends the Syrian army running. Here's another good one. The Syrians are defeated by some divine sound effects. I love it. But it's a, it's a blunt reminder for us just what little effort it takes for God to win a war, right? Um, there's, there's a great line in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, which is Moses um, singing a song of praise and worship to God after he had um, had Israel pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. He had caused the entire Egyptian army to be drowned in the Red Sea, so they're singing this song of praise, and and one of these lines that Moses sings is, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Uh, And I don't think I'll ever forget this illustration I heard from a pastor. Uh, Have you ever tried to blow out a birthday candle with your nose? I have not. You can go home and try today if you like. Light a candle. It doesn't have to be a birthday candle. And try to blow it out with your nose. Um, if it does happen to be your birthday, don't. I recommend not. Not with the birthday cake. But you can't do it. It's impossible. You can't get the, the lung capacity. You can't get the force to blow out a candle. I mean, maybe some of you can. With your nose, I don't know. It's hard, right? Now imagine you go walk over to Lake Shannon or any of these other lakes that we have invented. Go walk up to the shoreline and blow your nose and see what happens. You might get a ripple. I don't know. God's nostrils and the breath that he breathes out of them pile up the Red Sea into massive heaps and causes them to churn and congeal, and stand up. God's nostrils do that. God's victories over his enemies are effortless. Even the ones that look like a lot of work. God does not break a sweat. The the four lepers here, they're they're the first ones to see the good news and enjoy the spoils, but it doesn't take long. Uh, Verse 9, this is actually, it could be a sermon in and of itself, really. Um, we don't have the, uh, the time this morning. But in verse 9, that their consciences, consciences sort of get the better of them. They've been eating and drinking and plundering and, and enjoying it, but they say, we're not doing right. 
This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Good news cannot and should not be kept in. Should not be kept to yourself. Um, And so they go and tell the king, and there's this whole interaction where the king says, all right, listen, I know you think you know what you saw, but let me tell you what's really happening. They're planning an ambush. So we're going to go out there. We're going to leave our gates open. The Syrian army is going to come flooding in, and then we're really toast. Uh, Thankfully, though, another one of the king's servants knows better, and he really kind of convinces the king to just, just, this is really low risk. We're all dead anyway. Just go send some people out to check just in case. It's pretty low risk. And so he does. Actually, what a stark contrast between this servant who says, why don't you just go out and check, versus the captain from earlier who, who said, no way, not a chance. Um, but he does. He goes out and checks. The army really is gone. They actually even find, they find the, the, the scattered equipment and garments and everything all the way as far as um, the Jordan River. In verse 16, the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. The Sumerian market gets flooded with all the flour, all the barley, all the, the bread, all the livestock, all the food, all the drink, And prices come back down. And everything has happened exactly as God said it would. And God has seemingly accomplished the impossible. Good news at the camp. But the good news comes with a very severe warning at the gate. Actually, if you, as as you're kind of reading through this section, if you're reading it slowly, you kind of get to the end of verse 16, and you read according to the word of the Lord, and then you turn to 17, and, and all the good news kind of turns into a bad feeling in the pit of your stomach, right? Because you read the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gates, and, and you think, that's right, forgot about him. He had a promise too. So he gets put in charge of the gate, and in the, 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 you know, the hurry, the, the excitement, a, a mob rushes out of the city gate, and this captain is, is trampled and dies. Doesn't get to eat uh, a single piece of bread. Uh, doesn't get to enjoy any of it. Uh, and we can really ask the question, why such a harsh punishment for this man? Why does he get such a, a hard, why is he sentenced to death? Because this was really an, an unbelievable message from Elisha, right? But it's, it's not, when he responds with his doubt, this is not like, oh man, my head is spinning. I just, I don't know, Elisha. That just seems really difficult to believe. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that one. But no, when he says, if, if God opened windows even, how could this thing be? It is scornful doubt. It is arrogant, cynical, sneering doubt. He's not saying, I just have a hard time thinking about that maybe happening. I don't see a way for that. He's saying, yeah, right, Elisha. Why don't I just thrust you through with my sword right now? That's what he's saying. 
it really does kind of remind us uh, of um, way back in chapter 2, with that very kind of infamous text with, with the boys that come out of the city, the 42 boys, and they mock Elisha for being bald. They call him bald head, you bald head. And Elisha sends bears to kill them. Right? This is, that was not just Elisha having a bad day. That is a very large group of people mocking God's prophet and by extension mocking God himself and hating him, refusing to submit to his authority. So when this captain mocks Elisha, he, he doesn't falsify, as one commentator says, he doesn't falsify God's words by not believing. He forfeits his opportunity to benefit from it. And in fact, that, that's really the whole point of, of the repetition of all of these last few verses, 18, 19, 20. It, it really feels kind of repetitive, doesn't it? It's, it's like you get, like a preacher gets to the end of his sermon, he just keeps rambling and saying the same thing over and over again. You're like, all right, wrap it up. Preacher, let's finish. Um, verses 18 and 19 and 20 feel pretty superfluous, but it is meant to drill into our brains and to drill into our hearts that God's word always comes true to the very last dot. Every single bit of it comes true. And if you are not careful, if you do not believe, you will miss out on it. Uh, and so that's what brings us to Palm Sunday. This, this Sunday that we're, we're celebrating uh, especially like we read in Luke chapter 19, that this day on which Jesus entered Jerusalem five days before he would be killed. All of the messages for this week, they're messages of, of unbelievable good news, but unbelievable good news is not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing too. There are Stories upon stories of, of unbelievable things that God does for his people that we could po not possibly do. And all of those prepare us for that New Testament reading that we had earlier. So all of this week, we're going to be, as a church, have some extra services. We're going to be spending time meditating on, on the good news of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his death on Good Friday, his resurrection next Sunday. And all of it, in a sense, is sort of played out already in this unbelievable story of Elisha. Because Jesus comes to Jerusalem because all of humanity is in a terribly desperate situation. And we, we feel the effects of sin in our lives all the time. We feel the pain. We feel the sickness. Uh, relationships not being what they should be. A distance, a coldness, mistrust, abuse, corruption, even death. We all feel those effects. All of those things point to a much deeper, deeper problem. Is that we're under the curse of our sin. We're under a curse for our disobedience and our rebellion against God. A divine punishment for all of our sin. And all of Jesus' ministry, all of the Old Testament and all of the Bible, and the message as Jesus enters to Jerusalem is an unbelievable message, a word of hope given to people. That this very, very unlikely, humble, lowly man 
This man who is, who is hated by all of the religious elites, all of their synagogue's teachers, this hated man rides into a royal city on a cult, sending a message, receiving praise and receiving worship. He's being called the king of Israel and the son of David. This man who himself claimed to be one with the father, the one who proclaims, according to him, good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, the one who said he's going to forgive sins and redeem God's people and crush the head of Satan and the devil forever. He's coming to Jerusalem and he's saying, I'm here. It's an unbelievable message. He, he did not come the way that everybody thought he would. And yet that unbelievable message in one week's time is going to come completely true. One week later, the seemingly ordinary man who claimed to be God would rise from the dead just as he predicted. On the cross, as he was killed, he would bear the curse and the penalty of sin. He would be the sacrifice that we all need. Death would be swallowed up in victory so that the sting of death and the power of sin would be taken away once and for all, and salvation would freely and finally be offered to humanity. And yet that very good news comes with a warning. You have to believe before it's too late. The Jews in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, they did not believe when Jesus entered the city. They did not believe his message. It's like the captain did not believe Elisha's prophecy and promise. And before you face God on the judgment seat, you must put your trust in Jesus' work for your salvation. Actually, it's a great testimony from Keith before the service. Any moment, any moment, any of us could die and face the judge and face our creator. The clock will run out one day, and you don't want to be like the king's captain. Uh, it's quite interesting. Elisha actually kind of gives this captain 24 hours to believe the good news. The author of Hebrews tells us something even more urgent. He says, today, if you hear him speaking, do not harden your hearts. Do not refuse when you hear him speaking. It is an unbelievable message, and it is an incredibly urgent one. And it's not, it's not good enough to just kind of be vaguely around the people of God. The captain was, was in Samaria. He was among the people of God. He was there. He was around them, but it wasn't good enough for him. You can't just be around the people who believe and are blessed. You yourself must be the one who believe. But really, even for Christians, you know, this is not just simply a, a, you know, an unbeliever's message. Uh, even for Christians, there's an urgency every single time we come to God's word. Every single time we gather on Sunday, every single time we, we open up the Bible uh, on our own, uh, anytime we go to a Bible study and we hear the Word of God read or preached or the good news proclaimed, every single day we are challenged with whether or not we are going to believe these promises. Um, and, I, and I'm just going to kind of steal a couple of, of promises that another writer kind of pointed out. But John 14, verse 19, Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. Now, how, how often do we face death? 
and the loss of loved ones in our lives. How often do we stand at, at a graveside funeral? This is a promise for standing at the graveside funeral. Because I live, you also will live. Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you. How often do you feel crippled by your sin? How often does it feel like you can't possibly defeat this sin and kill it once and for all? Will you believe Romans 6.14? John 10.28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So when you suffer, when you feel weak, even when you're waffling, even when you, you're even a little bit wayward, do you believe John 10, 28, that you will not ever perish and no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand? Here's the last one, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, for the hymn we're about to sing. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when it seems like the world is out of control, when it seems like life is chaos, even when it seems like life just does not feel worth the trouble anymore, who is your king sitting on the throne? It is Jesus who can open the windows of heaven and provide a blessing at any point. It is the Jesus who can drive away any of your enemies with a whisper. And will you believe that he is the king that is still sitting on the throne? Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our God in heaven, we do thank you for this, this unbelievable message of good news. Lord, we, we feel the desperation. We know, we know the terrible state that we are in. We know uh, pain. We know death. We, even, we know our sin very well. Lord, we thank you for sending our King and our Savior. And we do pray that as we, as we go about our lives, as we uh, struggle through the day-to-day, -day, would you keep Christ at the forefront of our minds? Would you keep your promises at the forefront of our minds? We do ask that you would give us the faith to believe them. And we pray just that you would always give us that sense of urgency when we come to your word. And we never become complacent with the gospel. We never presume upon your grace. But continue to feed us and nourish us and just give us that, that daily reminder of your grace. We ask this all in